guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Podcast Nation, welcome back. We have a special episode. I am completely enamored with Dr. Ani Norum. She is the president of the Black uh, Physicians Association of Ontario. She has her own podcast, Race, Health, and Happiness. She's got training in public health. She is full of knowledge. She's done so much to combat systemic racism within our community. And in this amazing conversation, we talk about how COVID has really put a lens on how systemic racism in Black communities has really affected us, what Black communities are doing now to overcome. The reason I was so happy with this episode is because there's tons that's happening within the community that is inspirational. And it's motivating. And one of the key lessons that I, I got from talking to Dr. O was, you know, the, the solutions, they come from the community. They truly come from the community. So to have that lens, to have that perspective of we need to be listening to our community members to come up with solutions, whether it's at any level within within health or any issues that, that arise. It's such an important lesson and you guys are going to love this conversation. She She's just so full of knowledge. The other part at the end, we talk about self-care and, and what we do to try and create joy in our lives. And I think it's just a healthy reminder that this is important to be able to take care of others. We need to be taking care of ourselves and, and the content that she covers obviously can be quite traumatic talking about racism, talking about, you know, um, how, you know, people are oppressed and how it affects their lives on a daily basis. That's heavy. And so I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. I can't forget to bust out Solvent Wellness. Go to solventwellness.com where we have that healthcare provider community where we, we're doing our best to combat burnout. And we got virtual fitness classes, yoga 
We got cooking classes, nutrition tips, mindful meditation, stress management, all under one lens, all under one roof. And we're doing this because we want to change that boogie, change that narrative where we are there for each other and have that sense of community. So go to selvingwellness.com, $99 for the year, $9.99 if that's what you prefer. But check it. First month is free. Bam. All right. So without further ado, we're bringing Dr. Ani Norum, a.k.a. Dr. O. Check it. Quarkass Nation, my God. We have brought a gem into the mix. We have, we have this spectacular episode with Dr. Ani Norum. I am so privileged because I'll tell you, she has been an inspiration. She has been somebody that I look to for that. I call it the juice. When you're you're down and you feel the need to, and you you know you have an opportunity to step up. Say you know when it comes to advocacy, when it comes to speaking for the BIPOC community, I look at Doctor O, and I I I, I get my juice. So, Ani, welcome to the podcast. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. I'm like, <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. And thank you for um, thinking of me as an inspiration because I am so inspired by you. And I have to say, hey, my brother, who is now running the ICU. Chief, chief, congrats. Oh my God. Oh it makes, my it makes us happy to see it. So proud to see it. And I think oh that inspires. So I know it inspires so many. So thank you. Oh, wait, honestly, thank you, first of all. But thank I honestly, you know, with all that's happened, especially the post George Floyd, one of the, the key messages, especially after talking to Chica Oriva, was we all need to elevate. We all need to try and get a seat at the table and do our part to, to advocate Absolutely. for our communities. And uh, this this going on right now is going to be another step forward. So welcome. I'm so excited to have you. There's so much to talk about. We talked a little bit offline, which way we wanted to go. And we thought, you know, maybe starting with COVID, you know, and what, like you're in the GTA. Correct. Like, yes. Like run, run through me as you start, start to see, you know, the hardest hit communities, being affected by COVID, the BIPOC communities are being impacted by COVID. What was going through your mind at the time? Ooh, okay. So, I mean, this pandemic has just amplified like all of the inequities, all of the things that people were either not paying attention to or our leaders wanted us to not pay so much attention to mm. became very obvious, you know, when it comes to low income uh, populations, the elderly. But when it comes to race and racism, my goodness, right? You had a situation in this pandemic where there were black health leaders who actually at the beginning of the pandemic said, this is not going to be the great equalizer. They had like a public report that went out April, 2020, like really at the beginning, like April 2nd, it's almost like March, 2020, when like a lot of public health leaders were saying, this is the great equalizer. And they were like, no, the black community and racialized communities are going to be impacted. And they basically laid it out everything that happened because they knew that as black people in particular, I'm gonna speak specifically to, to black people, but it applies to so many racialized groups because of systemic racism, we're going to be the essential workers who are frontline, we're the people who didn't have access to PPE on time, like the personal support workers. We're the people who, um, you know, are, are 
um, working in jobs in precarious positions, regardless of education, where people end up not having paid sick days and living in conditions where you can't socially isolate, right? You're in, in, in um, low-income situations where, uh, you know, it's multiple families, you're, you're li- dense, multi-generational. multi-generational, dense living. And then on top of that, for Black people, there's just the stress of anti-Black racism, which is an extra layer of stress, right? When it comes to racism, any group that experiences racism, that actually, if you think about stress, it's like a, it's a neuroendocrine response, right? It's, it's that fight or flight. So what does that do? It impacts your immune system. It impacts your predisposition for chronic disease. So, you know, a lot of people in the Black community, uh, leaders were saying like, COVID is going to really want to hug us when it sees us because we have all that hypertension and everything from the extra stressors that we face. And then, you know, you have this, this condition where we are, even for me as a physician, I have my mother-in-law is a PSW. My mother worked as a PSW. Like we are interconnected in our networks with people who are experiencing the the impacts of systemic racism somehow or other. So we as Black people um, are at increased risk. And that's what played out. What played out? Toronto, we advocated for collection of race-based data. Didn't happen by magic. And by August, we saw that 83% of the cases in Toronto were racialized people, even though we don't comprise 83% of the city of Toronto. Right. Um, and so the collection of data was really important to hold leaders accountable, but it wasn't sufficient to move action. So what you saw was like black community leaders making sure that there was contact testing and, you know, like contact, tra- not contact tracing, but at least testing happening in communities and advocating for that. So what you saw in this pandemic was um first of all, predictable by those on the ground who understand how systemic racism works, for those who understand how poverty functions and those who understand how this virus um, was going to disproportionately impact people of lower social uh, status, either because of income, race, or other factors, or the combination. Um, and, And it was devastating. It was devastating to see it. It was scary for all of us. It still is. But it was particularly frustrating to be in places and spaces where we were advocating, saying, this is going to happen. This train is coming. It is not the great equalizer. And then to turn on the TV and hear, and this is the great equalizer, right? Like they they weren't listening and it it played out, but the community rallied, communities rallied, man. And, And so a lot of, although a lot of deaths that could have been prevented as leaders had, you know, really kind of, address the issues early on had happened, but communities rallied. And I know that many lives uh, had been saved and we're vaccinating in community and and saving lives. So I know um, so many beautiful things came out of communities and creativity, indigenous communities helped to to, uh, us in figuring out how to address, you know, vaccines and stuff like that. But um, that doesn't get a lot of news too, but indigenous communities did a phenomenal job at both prevention, vaccination, um, amazing stuff uh, happened on the ground that doesn't get talked about a lot. Amazing, amazing. Like I, I, so many things to to come on, Dom. But you know, we'll get into the 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 action, which I'm so proud of the communities out there that what they've done to just overcome some of these obstacles. But my question for you is, like, why why was the voices not being heard? Why was the like the people that were on ground level saying, hey, this is not going to be the great equalizer. We need to be concerned about this. 
hey, why aren't we collecting race-based data? We need to know who's being affected the hardest and, and actually be able to focus maybe some of our interventions and our communication and education within those sectors or communities. Why do you feel like this happened? Ooh, well, there's, there's, I think, a lot of reasons, but I'm going to focus on two. One is the credibility from the margins, right? Um, when you're when we're taught in medicine, we're still very much taught from a colonialist lens. And what do I mean by that? That means that we're taught that the authority on what is important in medicine and not important in medicine is through the lens of like the, you know, white, cisgendered Christian, you know, like the, the males that really colonized the, here and led, you know, Western medicine as we practice it. And the lens through which they've seen other groups, which is that there's something wrong with these groups, right? So when we think about the disparities, the way we were taught was either there's something genetically wrong with black people or other racialized people, or there's something uh, psychologically wrong with, uh, you know, people who um, are on, on the gender spectrum or when it comes to homosexuality or anything, like anything, anything that wasn't like that one you know, 70 kilogram white male is somehow inferior. And so when those groups, so that's the way we're trained in medicine and honestly, even in public health, right? There's something wrong and they need to be fixed. And so it's in thinking that these groups are saying, no, it's the system that is predisposing us to disease, just like with COVID-19 or other conditions. And we need to do something about the system, like understanding that those voices in the margins are valid, right? So it was something that could be ignored. We were, some of us were on TV, we were saying, can you hear us now? This is happening in community. We're, and we're physicians. You would think, you know, oh, when you become a doctor, whatever, you know, um, but a lot of us are not sitting at those decision tables. So I, I know in the, the episode you had with Dr. Chika Arua, you were talking about representation matters, but a lot of us, um, unfortunately, you know, we might enter medicine, but we're not necessarily promoted to the point that we end up at the highest decision making tables. And on top of that, we're underrepresented. So it's to like, listen, when the margins speak, there's that sense that those who are in the ivory tower or who are in power know better. But the thing is they have blind spots. They're not seeing what's on the ground. They're not part of these communities. They don't have that qualitative and quantitative data on the ground. So that's one. The second is that change is really hard. And so for all of us, it's so much easier to stick to status quo. It's easier, you know, in public health to, to follow the standard protocols for outbreaks and say, oh, you know, if it's happening in long-term care, that is an issue. But where we're getting a signal from the United States that African-Americans are disproportionately affected, what's happening in Canada, maybe we should collect race-based data. You know, you heard from the leaders back then saying, oh no, we don't look at race here in Canada, which is just- We don't see color, yo. We don't see color. Right, we don't see color, that, which is like the most racist thing you could say, right? Like, it's <laughs> like, we have willfully decided to ignore um, a major uh, form of discrimination that impacts people's lives and predisposes them to being exposed to, to um, COVID-19. So going against what one has been taught and trying to change, you know, practices, legislation had to be changed for the collection of race-based data. That's a lot of work. And so were people already stressed out and sleep deprived from just dealing with mainstream issues with the, with the, um, with this pandemic, then to like rally like that and step up for another community or other communities that they historically never 
learned that they needed to step up for was challenging. Fortunately, there were those who stepped up. Fortunately, those things did change, but it took time. And a lot of time, unfortunately, was lost. But I think in moving forward, there have been really great opportunities for um, leadership to learn from the margins and from people from the margins to be more central uh, in positions, particularly after the death of George Floyd, where there was, so, you know, even Toronto Public Health declared anti-Black racism a public health crisis, specifically because you had the pandemic of anti-Black racism that's been going on here for centuries that intersected specifically with the pandemic of COVID-19 when we're talking about impacted communities, because Black communities, according to Statistics Canada, was the most impacted racialized group in 2020 as far as um, you know, hospitalizations, deaths, et cetera, and, and infection for COVID-19. So these things came together. And so it was awful, but it also was an opportunity for change. And so I've seen that kind of change, but that's why things didn't move. That's why people weren't listening. Number one, they weren't really taught to listen to, to groups like us saying things that were counterintuitive to them. And the second was, it's really hard. Anti-racism work is active work all the time, going against the grain, changing policies, changing practices, doing reflection, unlearning the stereotypes that you've learned. That's some hard stuff. So um, fortunately, people were willing to do it, but it took time. And it, I mean, there's so many like uh, great points here. And, you know, one thing that always stuck with me with with this when it comes to COVID response is how important the data mattered. Mm -hmm. Like really, when you look at you, when you look at, as we've mentioned, hardest hit communities and, and, you know, when it comes and this is my humble opinion, but when it comes to our response, like hearing the voices on the ground, like this is what you, the, the, this is such an important uh, tool for adequate decision-making, like how you, like what they're seeing and how your decisions potentially from up above are going to actually be uh, like come through. Cause if, if they might come up with 90 recommendations, but if this can't be operationalized because of X, uh, X, Y, Z factor, like where are we going to be? We're not going to be any better off. And so just like that, that idea that we really needed to be hearing the voices in the community, yeah. I hope is a lesson that will, that be, that we, we like, has been ingrained in us moving forward because I think we'll only be better off as a result because this is not going to be the only issue. This is not going to be the only no, pandemic. No, it's, it's not. And well, I'm hoping that, yeah, this change or this awareness carries us forward. So that's why I'm always incredibly grateful to um, activists during the time after mm. uh, the murder of George Floyd because that helped to move the dial forward, right? For people to get out of their comfort zones and see what was happening and then it was in the pandemic. And so it created space because I've been doing anti-racism work for a decade now, right? Brought into space yeah. and speaking. And it, there was a total shift. And that also helped with moving things forward for the pandemic. But one thing that I want to point out that I think a lot of people don't realize, and it's a little bit sad, but it's, it's just the truth, is that data, I would say, is necessary for sustainable policy change but it is not sufficient for the change. So people tend to think, especially in medicine, if we just get the data, they'll see that we're impacted and take action. What I saw with this pandemic sitting at different tables was that we had some data, at least at Toronto Public Health, and the data didn't, again, didn't just happen. It's from community advocacy, but the, the data was collected 
And then when you saw the vaccine decisions come out for the province at, at first here in Ontario, where did the vaccines go? It went to affluent neighborhoods. I give that as an example because it's a public example. There's other examples that, uh, you know, in, in sitting at tables that I can't, I can't necessarily share, but that is representative of some of the decisions. So that's why I'm saying like people tended to go towards status quo. There was a fear to say, for instance, we wanted to see black communities prioritized. We're like, look, Statistics Canada has said, you know, we were the most impacted group in, in uh, 2020, right? Can we prioritize resources for black communities? And there still was resistance. Um, and so the data is really critical in being able to hold leaders accountable, but for them to move beyond that, it really does take a lot of advocacy and work beyond that. And to be honest, for us as communities, we didn't wait on that. There was a lot of kind of middle ground solidarity to make sure people knew where to get uh, tested. That happened in community by community leaders, like not, not even saying I did that work, that work happened with community leaders in these neighborhoods. And then when it came to vaccination, we had to, you know, again, call upon our indigenous colleagues and say, how did you design your vaccine clinics, that kind of thing? Let's do it in a culturally um, appropriate way that, you know, for the black community and really that drives a major social determinant of health that we don't all talk about, which is self-determination. We've been taught that by our indigenous colleagues, but that's so important that we know it's by us, for us, but we invite other groups there, right? We use an Afrocentric approach and bring everybody in. So the data helped, but was not sufficient to move the dial. I, I think that is such an important point that it's, it's not a, a matter of like getting that document, sticking it on the table and say, What's up now? Because I mean, <laughs> let's mic, be honest right? with you. Yeah, yeah, drop the mic. Yo, check this out. <laughs> I ain't dropping this mic. I need uh, I need it for this interview. But um, the uh, but it's such an important point because it's true. We had the data. We I remember even I remember going on. I was on Evan Solomon's show, and they're talking about vaccine rollouts, and and I feel like this was in no, late November, and I'm like, we should honestly think about who's like going to racialized communities and bringing vaccines home because these are the people that I see in the ICU legit. You know what I'm saying? The stories are consistent. Yep. And I remember just, it was a little bit of the like glazed over look. Mm -hmm. You're just like, Oh, and, and so (laughs) it just really, I I guess my point is, you know, there's a lot of work, a lot of advocacy that has to be done. And maybe, maybe, Ani, we, we could talk about, you touched on it a bit, about the actual work behind the scenes. But I think, I mean, even as a brother, I have no idea the, the, the level of work that had to be done to, to be able not only to collect the data, but to actually, as you mentioned, uh, advocate for action that would, that would benefit the community. So, Maybe give us examples or further examples of what needed to be happening behind the scene to make this happen. Ooh, I mean, because there's so many people who are involved. So that's why I say it's a beautiful thing, nonetheless, right? Um, I always say this pandemic uh, caused a lot of disconnection, but caused such reconnection. So, so many community leaders and religious leaders and medical leaders, like, you know what I mean, from Black community and beyond came together to do play so many uh, practical pieces, but I could tell you that um, early on we had, uh, you know, 
um, Angela Robertson, who is an uh, executive director of a community health center here in uh, Toronto, and Dr. Kwame McKinsey, who is the CEO of the Wellesley Institute and a psychiatrist, works at the provincial, um, uh, you know, on a number of things for the province. And so they came together to create what's called the Black Health Plan. So they started to kind of think about what would be needed for um, everything from uh, testing, advocacy to vaccine uh, pieces to uh, what they're moving on now is recovery because in black communities, you know, black businesses, that kind of thing just disproportionately impacted. It's, it tends to, to be us because of the way anti-black racism works, right? Where we have a society that's built on uh, whiteness having power and blackness defines the boundaries of that, right? So, mm-hmm. so we end up usually being either the most impacted or one of the most uh, impacted along with indigenous uh, communities, because they're the, the, the group that, you know, are the original keepers of the land. So that's like the structure of, of this space that we work in. So um, you, had, you had people kind of thinking about plans at the provincial level. You had um, the Black Opportunity Fund and other organizations thinking about, okay, we need national webinars to inform uh, people about their susceptibility to COVID-19, because a lot of Black people initially thought, it doesn't affect black people, but then we started to see what was happening in the States and then the vaccine. For the Black Physicians Association of Ontario, we saw that there were a lot of community groups doing a lot of things. So we said, what is it? We stood back and said, okay, what is it that we can contribute? Because for the Black Physicians Association, our mandate is um, to advocate for increasing the number of black medical students or black physicians in the province, which we are very grateful we've been able to do that uh, fairly successfully. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, and then uh, health equity for Black Ontarians, right? But we realize there's many players doing that work, in particular, the Black Health Alliance that established our, our you know, main Black community health center, Taibu Community Health Center. So we spoke to the different groups and we realized vaccination was our, our the thing that as physicians, we played a stronger role in compared to uh, testing or recovery or food baskets. There were all types of things, people making sure people had food and, you know, education and all kinds of things that were going on. So for us, we looked at all of that chaos that was happening and said, where, where do we make an impact? So all the way in January, uh, we created like a three-pronged approach, which was advocacy because we already had data from um, the Public Health Agency of Canada that Black people were the least likely group to want to have a vaccine. So we had that information and we felt like this, um, it was important for people to realize that this issue of vaccine hesitancy was uh, predominantly due to distrust. So it wasn't a regular vaccine hesitancy. Like you see in other groups, they don't really believe in vaccines. This is about, we don't trust the groups that are telling us to take the vaccine, which is government, uh, healthcare and researchers, because those are three groups that historically have uh, shown that they, don't really value black lives as far as people being experimented on against their will, but also just treatment in hospitals or treatment in everyday lives or not being able to access PPE or on the ground in some of these neighborhoods, people had advocated for more buses because they're essential workers. They don't get paid sick days. Can we have more buses so we can socially distance? That didn't happen. But now you want me to come line up so you can inject something at me? No. So we were like, we need to advocate around anti-Black racism and how that led to the distrust. Educate within the community. There was a lot of misinformation. So we're like, advocate, educate, and then vaccinate. And so we had a whole plan and strategy working with a number of different groups um, and hospitals and health units coming together 
not just to vaccinate, but we wanted to bring it from a very Afrocentric lens, again, as we've learned from our indigenous brothers and sisters. So we, we really brought in the principle of um, Ubuntu, which is I am because we are. So, you know, when you come into our, our vaccine center, like there's music, we answer your questions. If you're not ready to get vaccinated, that's okay. We respect you. We're just gonna talk to you, let you know the information, introduce ourselves, um, some of our, our pop-ups, there's there's food, there's, you know, Play-Doh that you can pick up for your kids. And and when you get your vaccine, we celebrate you. We say congratulations. Yes. You're protecting yourself. You're yes. protecting your family. And, and we make sure that the vaccinators have food too because we're all human beings. We want the vaccinators to be well as they are making the community well. And we've seen other communities. We've seen people, droves of people sometimes who are differently abled, who are not Black, but they know that it's an inclusive space and people tell friends and they come about because we're using that Afrocentric approach, but we invite others to come as long as, you know, we're able to serve our people. And so it is a beautiful thing that, you know, people are starting to call public health 2.0 because we bring yes. that, that energy. So, and we do this with multiple partners, not just as physicians, you know what I mean? It, it's the, it's, yes, it's nurses, medical inclusive. students, community workers, pastors, everybody, you know, coming together. It's a beautiful thing, but these are some of the things that had to come into place. Um, both, like I said, the big advocacy, collection of data, moving policy, and then being on the ground. So our group has largely been the, you know, part of being on the ground, offering culturally safe Black-led uh, vaccination clinics. So that's what's happening. That's what's up. People, do you hear, this is, I'm getting chills thinking about this. Changing the boogie. Changing the narrative. This is exactly what I'm talking about. We don't go like we're not having this formulaic approach that says, hey, everybody and their mother needs to be treated in X, Y, Z fashion. It's it's personalized. It's community focused. It's like what's going to work for the people? Like I, I just like I could just see my mom walking into a clinic like this, walking in with head not uh, bobbing a little bit, feeling the flow a little bit, right? saying hello to saying hello to her crew. Like this is this is what it's all about. Like making it about the people, yeah. and this is what makes me so proud to hear this because this stuff is happening at ground level, and I, you know I, I'm a, I'm a bit ashamed in some ways, but like you don't hear about this. You don't hear, like, at least I, I no, no, from my perspective, like, if I were mainstream media, I'm like, look at this representation. Look at, no, uh, stop with the, like, fear, 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 fear. But look at this positivity. Look at what the community is doing to try and embrace uh, treatment, to, 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 mm. to, to increase vaccination. Look what they're trying to do here. Yeah. And it's so brilliant and it's so patient community focused i love it i love it and this is what this is medicine this is what it needs to where it needs to go to that's what i think that is like where we say ubuntu i am because we are when you look at a patient regard like you're supposed to see people's dignity and so if you come and you say you don't want to get vaccinated then i'll say okay why and then i'm listening and I'm learning. And then we talk. And if and many people have come. I mean, even my mom came to one of the vaccine clinics and she's she's Trini, Trini right? I'm half Nigerian, half Trini. Yeah. She's like, well, I don't feel comfortable yet. And it was fine. She spoke to one of the doctors for like an hour, right? Came all the way to the mm. to the Jamaican Canadian Association. She wasn't ready. But then like three days later, she was. Now, this is after six months of like, you know what I mean? Trying to, mm. to work with her. But then when she did get the vaccine, she was comfortable because she made her decision. She got enough information. And what we were saying to so many of the people that we were speaking to was like, 
we're doing this out of love. It's not because what often comes across, particularly for a lot of black healthcare workers or nurses or PSWs in, in, in a lot of centers is, well, we've never really shown value for you, but we want you to get vaccinated because we value all these other people. And it's usually like non-black people. So we haven't shown like value mm-hmm. for black lives, but you're going to impact a non-black life. So hurry up and get the vaccine. And we're mm-hmm. saying no, we're, and actually I quote you, I say, you know, I'm hearing this, I'll say, I'm hearing this from black doctors, our people, that it's black and racialized people we're seeing in the ICU, right? This is not mm-hmm. a joke, this is impacting us. And I'm saying this to you because I care but I also respect your opinion. So I'm here to answer questions and that kind of thing. Now, our last clinic um, with the Jamaican Canadian Association led by two of our, our uh, physicians here in Toronto, um, Dr. David Esho and Dr. Neil Isaac, we had blood pressure machines. We we're doing glucose. There's food baskets. It's about the person. We are trying to help you and we do want you to get the vaccine, but even if you don't get the vaccine, we want to help you. And so the focus is not the vaccine in arms. The focus is the people. And we're hoping that sticks beyond this pandemic, the people, right? All of us. Yes. Have that. I always say it's like uh, the word to me that comes to mind is compassion. Like Mm -hmm. just put yourself in that person's shoes. Like, you know, like I get a lot of, um, I mean, I I hear a lot of this in terms of uh, like, how can these communities not get vaccinated? Like they're going to hold us up or whatever. And I'm like, I, I try and, I mean, <laughs> sorry, I'm those that are listening, you guys see Dr. O's face, but I, you know, I do try and, and, and well, take a deep breath first of all, but I think people have no idea. Most people have no idea about the, the mistrust in the system. Like, you know, I, it was very, we had a, the most influential episodes to me was with Dr. Mike Curlew, when, especially when he talked about Indigenous health and, and a bit in Black communities, but also mm-hmm. with Dr. Oriva. But, you know, you touched on it a bit, but like when it comes to the mistrust, like let's just spell it out. Like what, where did, where's the roots from this? Yeah, sure. where, where's this coming from? So actually we call it a distrust. So we just published in the distrust. Canadian Medical Association Journal on increasing... Uh, vaccine uptake in Black communities, because mistrust makes it almost seem like it's a mistake or a misunderstanding, but it's not. Um, It's based on evidence, actually, that people have, you know, intergenerational in real life. So, you know, um, again, using my mom as an example, like she remembers in Trinidad when um, there would be like vaccine companies or something that would come in and there would be like white people, there would be vaccines. And then shortly after kids would die. Right. So, you know, her dad always told her when the if you see one of those vans, you know, because back then there weren't good ethical standards. Um, We know in Nigeria, just in the 1990s, um, you know, with one of the um, anti meningitis vaccines, I'm not going to mention the pharmaceutical company because I don't have all of the details memorized, but you can certainly Google it, um, uh, had had issues um, in Nigeria with their ethical um, approaches um, uh, when treating meningitis in Nigeria in the 1990s, for which they they have actually paid. So they, um, they had to, to pay for the fact that they, they breached these issues, right? There was, um, what do you call it? A, a whistleblower within the organization. So that's nice to know that somebody within the organization at least spoke to that. Um, and then you've got like just the historical, like everyday experiences. Like we're talking about black communities having histories of saying like, um, there's gun violence in our neighborhoods or what's happening with police violence, or, you know, the fact that for instance, uh, a black woman in, in Canada with this 
same education as her, you know, white counterpart um, is 1.5 times more likely to be in a lower paying job, to be overqualified for her job, right? There's so many situations. The United Nations came here in 2017 and said they were deeply concerned about the human rights um, situation of African Canadians. Right. So there's so many areas in our everyday lives, like not just the microaggressions that we face when people assume we're not telling the truth or we're uh, stealing or a criminal or whatever, whatever stereotypes have come as the legacy of slavery has affected North America, all those biases and stereotypes. But the everyday experience of our lives not being valued. And then you say, come and take this vaccine like it's the same group saying it, then there is going to be a distrust. There is going to be a sense of, okay, wait, let's see. So a lot of people are just, I want to see what's going to happen. Now we've been taught this by our relatives because many, for many generations, black people had been used against their will in research studies are familiar somewhat with the dangers of research studies. So just want to see. And so I've said, there's two examples that I get. Number one is in our histories as African peoples, if our relatives or our, our ancestors had lined up every time Europeans said, come, come and have this, a lot of us wouldn't be here. So that's intergenerational wisdom to just take a moment and gather more information. Because that's usually what people want. They want more information and they feel that it was, you know, the vaccine happened very quickly. So they want more. Most of the people that we encounter have had their MMR, have had their, t- they, they've had vaccines. It's not anti-vax. Right. It's a sense of like, distrust about like, okay, what's going on? But the, the, the second thing is I want people who don't have that experience to think about, okay, what if a great vaccine came from a country that they didn't trust, like that had a bad human rights history? And there are some that have vaccines right now that I'm not going to, to name that do not have a very good human rights um, record as a country. And they had the best vaccine and they had all the studies. And then they said, we have it here. Come and get the vaccine. You also might be hesitant. You would need more information because you would say, you know what? This country doesn't treat its people right, doesn't respect uh, people, has had a lot of human rights violations. I don't know if I trust their science, their data, their whole thing, to which you would need somebody to say, actually, Canadians were out there and involved. Canadians were involved in the, the vaccine development. Canadians were involved um, in, in the tests and uh, in the studies and had you know good outcomes. And Canada supports this. And this is really important. And this is the best vaccine we have out there. But I still think there might be some people who say, you know what, that country still doesn't have a really good human rights record. I want to wait. And so I feel like that's analogous to what Black communities experience. Because as I mentioned, the United Nations had already stated in 2017 that they were concerned about the human rights of Black people here in this country. So it would take a while. Trust does come into it, even if you've got lots of studies and lots of evidence. You have to build, you know, trust is not just given, it is earned. And so as Black physicians, we play a role as ambassadors to say, you know what, this is the evidence. And, you know, uh, Dr. Kizzy, you know, who's a Black woman was involved. There were Black people who were involved in the studies. And then again, I speak to you, I say, we know uh, that our, our members of our communities, Black and racialized communities, are, you know, overrepresented in the ICU. It's affecting us. So it's it's all of those things I think people need to recognize and not just call it like um, either being an anti-vax or that the people are misinformed or uneducated. Like, no, it, it comes from our lived experience and it takes time for people to say, okay, I think it makes sense for me. And we respect that. 
hundred percent. You know, in from a palliative care lens, it's rapport. You build yes. rapport with the with your your the your patient family community. Um, so you establish that trust. And yeah, I think a lot of people they have no. Like I, I think when they hear exactly what you said about the distrust of so a lot of people's eyes are opening a little bit right now, knowing that there's been some experimental uh, medical treatment throughout our history, mm-hmm. whether that is in the Caribbean, whether it's in, in the motherland, whether it is on in North America with the Tuskegee experiments, like this is local and it's been not that distant in the uh our, our past and for example my my dad would have seen the results of of some of this you know and and so like remembering that that is part of the the fabric the background of of why these decisions are being made and I, i'll be honest with you i don't know if this is a fair uh safe question or comment but when it comes, this is part of my like hesitation when it comes to like the va- vaccine certificates and so forth. Mm. Is that you know, like I, I've been on the news saying this too. I'm like, you're going to be further discriminating people that look like me based on the fact that they want more time or more information, yeah. not necessarily um, because they're they're anti-vax. It's just yeah. they, it's it's. it's they want time. They want that ability to, to 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 trust the information. And and this was my fear that you know when you when you look at maybe for some this might have some short term benefit, but this is not but forcing people into a spot. I don't know if that's doing much for developing that rapport and that trust. And so this is one of my in the back of my mind. I'm like, okay. I don't know if this is if this is a good uh, scenario. So I agree. Um, my, yeah, my, my concern about that is it becomes another proxy for discrimination against groups that want um, more time or more resources because, you know, we've, we've vaccinated like um, thousands um, in, in black communities and racialized communities, but we do this with like, you know, perhaps this hospital, that hospital, people donating their time, blah, blah, blah. Like we have to kind of put things together. Like, you know, when you have leftovers in a pot, and you, you know what I mean? But what you, so we're not well-resourced, right? But where we could see across the, the province, Black and other, um, you know, racialized or other communities that have distrust, and there's like a targeted effort to put in effort to help people um, in getting the information that they need to make the best decision for them. And most people actually do end up selecting to have the vaccine once they have that kind of trusted information, then that makes more sense rather than, you know, saying we absolutely need these um, vaccine, you know, uh, records for people to move around because it'll, it will end up having uh, racism as a proxy at some point. What I am in favor of is what a number of the universities and other places and healthcare spaces are doing, which is that you either get the vaccine or if you don't get the vaccine, you need to get tested very regularly. I feel like that becomes motivation for people to get the vaccine, but also respects people's personal choice. Like if you absolutely, because of your religion or whatever, believe that you do not want it, then part of the social contract for us as a society is that you will get, you know, the test 
every day or however often you need to, to make sure you're safe and you're keeping others safe. Cause that's what the vaccine is about. You keep yourself safe, keep others safe. You want an alternative, fine. So I'm more in favor of the, the um, regular testing rather than um, these, these uh, I guess they're being termed vaccine passports that eventually will, be, will end up resulting in some form of racial discrimination. Yeah, and you bring up a really good point too, because you know when it comes to the what I've been saying is think about the resources needed to set up these passports. Number one, like you know, not to get editorialized a bit, like Ontario is one of the most vaccinated like populations in the world at this point, mm -hmm. and 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 so when it comes to bang for your buck, you know, if you're going to spend that kind of cake to set this up, I'd rather you be putting it into resources in the communities that are being um to to establish more trust and rapport exactly. personally yeah like that makes way more sense to me i know and you know the it because people always want to feel like you could do something well that's something you could do straight up and uh and i think my my humble opinion you would get more bang for your buck and there'd be some long-term trust that is the that's issue. gonna yeah that is my issue it's it's really creating the change you know even in back to the episode with i think when you were talking to uh, dr chica Oruwa, and you had talked about the racism she was encountering and you had said you know i can't believe this is still happening but the change doesn't happen unless we make the change happen right change doesn't just mm. occur we have to change it and so building the trust is something that the black physicians association of ontario is advocating for because that's really key that's what carries us over pandemics happen every like 100 years or so but what we want to see is actual change and so what you're talking about making the efforts to actually build the trust and have the relationships you know the hospitals need to start to have relationships with marginalized communities and hear voices and, and understand what's going on and have ways that people can report when they're feeling culturally unsafe or, or something has happened. Public health units need to be in community and understanding the different groups. So these small pockets of what we've done, we've seen that start to happen, but we need more of that. And I'm hoping there's going to be more investment in that as we move towards recovery, as opposed to stigmatizing more people, stigma, like creating more stigma, which is what that uh, approach will do is is not going to be the solution but um but i don't know if people it's, it's always the same thing when these things happen we're like can you hear us now we're letting you know there's a different you know approach what? you know what though it's i mean i mean personally i've been a, a bit shy because there's a lot of people influential people that have been you know saying that having different opinions saying oh we need these certificates and um i gotta say you know instinctively I, f I felt exactly how you felt. And for me right now, that gives me more, as I alluded to, juice to to advocate for our people because I every instinct is telling me this is going to cause more discrimination. Like imagine you walk into a restaurant and they're like, hey, where's your certificate? And like, and you're being de denied at the door in front of people for, with your family. Like I just, yeah. I don't know. They just... Uh, I don't like it. There's, anyways. Sorry, I didn't mean to digress there a little no, bit. No, that's not a digression. Just, uh, I like that that example. That's exactly it. And what we might end up seeing, because people know that, for instance, black or other racialized people are less likely to get the vaccine, is you'll see differential treatment where perhaps a white person mm -hmm. will say, "Oh, I forgot my vaccine passport," but trust me, I've had my two vaccines. Whereas you might be held up longer. I mean, that's what happens to us with the police, like any form of over-policing, that's what happens 100%. to us. We end up being racially profiled. And so mm -hmm. that is a very, con that's not a digression. That's a concrete example of like in front of your family and everything, you have to go home because they've 
now decided that you're more likely to be unvaccinated or you need more proof. That that mm-hmm. is what happens to us in so many areas already. This would just be one more uh, of those. So we know that's what's likely um, to happen. And it's scary. And it's I'm, I'm hoping that it doesn't. But yeah. That's, yeah. That's- and and, and, and a lot of times when it comes down, to, as you alluded to, it's like unintended consequences. Even I think people that are unvaccinated are going to be more likely to congregate and have their own events, which I would be more worried would could cause further spread, mm-hmm. more intimidating mm-hmm. spread. So yeah, it's, you know, so uh, one thing I, I know your, your, your listeners are, um, you know, uh, a lot of healthcare people. So when making decisions within your institutions, whether it's government or talking about within a hospital, there's a tool you can use called a racism impact assessment or racial impact assessment. And that's where you look at the consequences of a particular policy that you're aiming to do that seems like it's a good idea, but then to think about the impact that that could have on racialized groups. There's also health equity impact assessment, which is more broad when you're thinking about other groups, but the health equity impact assessments we have in Ontario don't take into account race race or racism. So you would add that to that, but there's ways you can check yourself before you have a policy or procedure, because that's exactly how systemic racism works. Most of the time, it's not that people are now creating policies specifically to discriminate against other groups, but our status quo and the way we think usually ends up being towards the lens of the dominant group, the people with the most power, so white Canadians, and not thinking about the impact it's gonna have on other groups. So you can concretely use tools like that to help in the decision-making, to open up those blind spots that don't exist representation does matter, but we're not all going to be represented at certain tables. Use frameworks and tools that can help for better equitable decision-making, please. Oh, I love, because this was going to be one of my questions for you, because this is something like as a, as a leader now that, you know, I want to make sure that we address, how do we have that more equitable lens? How do we approach that? And I I might be actually grilling you a little bit offline uh, (laughs) to, to make sure that, you know, um, I, you know, I, I, I use the proper tools and use, uh, use everything I can do everything I can, uh, to promote this as we sit, sit at higher and higher tables collectively. Um, and just, uh, I have one more comment in terms of like, uh, un- unintended or uh, with some of these policies and unintended co- consequences, like, you know, like even like I'll never forget. I, I was out with a with a call, colleague or uh, friends the other, uh, not that long ago, and they were even talking about focusing how they were focusing some vaccines and and based on postal codes. And out of his mouth, and this is somebody that has influence. He's like, I don't know why I should be punished for being good. Like I stayed home, and uh, now I gotta wait longer for my vaccine. And I'm like, walk me through this, my friend. Walk me through this about uh, your risk as uh, somebody that gets to work from Zoom at home. (laughs) Okay. Yes. Like, do you want these people? Are you still ordering Uber? Are you still getting your Amazon? You know what I'm saying? Like, you got to widen that lens, that perspective, son. Yeah, because this is that was such an ignorant comment. It took everything in my power not to take (laughs) off my shirt and just rage. But it's like, I'm ready to take off my earrings, like ready. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But this is the kind of this is this is the level of of thought. Yeah, that's going uh, that uh, that is going throughout the uh, 
society. So yes, yes, I am so appreciative of of, of tools such as the health equity assessment and mm-hmm. and yeah, we, we'll definitely. I'm going to take you up on chatting about Happy this. Too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I I can't. I'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about your story. So like you have this amazing co- uh, podcast, race, health, and happiness, but like even before that, <laughs> what led to the advocacy? Cause let me tell you something. There's a lot of MDs that like, there's not that many brother and sister MDs, but there's, <laughs> there's enough of us, but no, not as many people so early in their career decided to have a voice and try and advocate and try and represent the people in, in, in such an admirable way. And once again, I look at my own career and I'm like really ashamed that I took myself mid career before trying to step up. But what was it about you that was like, I'm going to do this as part of my lack of a better word, essence, my, this, <laughs> like, my, this is going to be part of my career path. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. So it's, it's, I'm, I'll try to break it down to maybe four uh, components, but um, I think it's just really for me, that is my North star. I think all of us need to think about why we're, we're here on this earth and the things that drive us and what our gifts are. So I see that as my North star. So, you know, I've done different things, but it's generally headed in the direction for me around um, black uh, community health, uh, women's health as well. And then with that, hoping that it inspires other groups because I want to see other uh, equity deserving groups also be able to um, to improve health. And I'm always happy to be an ally in that kind of work as well. But um, going back for me, um, as a child, I experienced racism early on, not just the interpersonal racism, like where a kid says, oh, your skin is you know dirt or, or whatever, um, but also from a teacher, like a teacher in grade two who um, you know, I was getting B's and then in grade two, all of a sudden I was getting D's and my mom had to advocate for me. We had moved to a new, actually more racist neighborhood in, in, uh, in Montreal, right. In, in St. Sebastian. And, um, I was experiencing so many things that my mom empowered me. Um, and you know, my dad encouraged me, but in particular, my mom gave me the tools and had me start like reading. So I was reading, she, you know, at that point, once I had the, all these racist encounters and we had to like advocate, um, you know, I was reading about slavery and Martin Luther King and Harriet Tubman. Like I was learning about the, and then I just took it like to next level so that by grade three, I was getting straight A's, but I was also this student who, you know, when it was show and tell and kids come in with a rock collection, I'm there with my crayon drawing of the African national Congress flag of South Africa. And I'm talking about apartheid, wow. right? <laughs> like this is, wow. this is great. Day, right? I love it. But that was my coping mechanism. And I was bright and teachers encouraged me. So I always had all of this positive reinforcement. Um, and our school, our principal was receptive to my mom's observations, but like, why did my daughter all of a sudden get D's? Nobody called me what's going on with this teacher. And so there was a lot of multiculturalism and all, you know, all of that kind of stuff going on in my school. Fast forward through time. So I'd always been involved in these type of community work. And my parents always, you know, uh, they weren't professionals, but always. Um, so they're, you know, my, my mom worked PSW, different jobs. My dad actually cleaned offices, but, you know, highly educated people nonetheless. And so they were always involved in community. So I was doing community work anyways and anti-racism work. Fast forward again, part of a mentorship program for medical school. So my mom happened to see a doctor who's an endocrinologist. It was for like her thyroid actually, but he was like, what's your, what, who is your, tell me about your children. And then he was running a mentorship program. So I entered that, got into medical school at McGill. 
So I benefited from people who were reaching back and saying, you know, you should come into medicine. So that stayed with me. And I was involved with Quebec Black Medical Association and all of this work. Again, I'm going to fast forward. End of medical school, I was going to do family medicine and obstetrics. And then I learned about this field that I'm in, public health and preventive medicine, where you look at communities and how to make them better. And it just seemed to like mesh well with my own anti-racism and community uh, work uh, to follow this field. There were some glitches because it's still, like I said, medicine is still colonial. So I ended up learning all the things that are wrong and need to be fixed about black communities and this and that. But I was so fortunate that at the time I graduated, I went to Taibu Community Health Center, which is a health center, the only one I think in, in Canada that has a mandate to serve the black community. That is their mandate. And so when I went there early in my career, I say that was my fellowship because man, that's where I learned this Afrocentric approach. That's where I learned all these things. And, and had to unlearn, you know, the, the, the way that I'd been taught to look at our community with pathology. The executive director, he said to me, whatever the problems the community is facing, the answers are in the community. You just have to listen. Wow. That, do, do, that I mean, I just melted when I heard that. That is gold right there. Right? Like, it's one of those things that you, you as you hear it, it's like so clear. It, like, it's so clear. Well, now, then I still wasn't listening. I was like, no, we need to like have a diabetes program. We need to do like, I was, you know what I mean? I was like full speed ahead with my training, but I learned it. I listened and it took me a while, but I learned and I saw people improve. I saw, I was de-prescribing really. That was my favorite part of medicine. So we were like less diabetes medication, less hypertension medication because they didn't need it because there were programs there that was you know, um, soca size and, you know, people could exercise. Those dietitian tell you how much fufu, how much plantain, how much, you know, curry, everything that goes with your culture for your diet. And it didn't matter which culture they were, what we call had cultural dexterity. They could match anything that was heart healthy or, or, um, or needed for a diabetic diet. And there was a kitchen there. So the whole community would come together and cook. And because of that, that's where Ubuntu comes from. Because of that Ubuntu, I was even deprescribing Tylenol number three. I saw patients pain reduced because of this coming together. I'm in clinic. There's laughter yoga going on. How can we concentrate? Everybody's laughing for an hour. (laughs) And so I said to myself, he's right. The answers are here. But you know what I was seeing also? I was seeing people come in distressed and sick because despite their education, they couldn't get the jobs. Despite um, you know, working really hard, they were going to be deported. Despite all of the efforts with their, their children, their, their children were, their boys were feeling hopeless and feeling, one of the reports said a black, young black boy when asked, what are the issues that are affecting the health of black people? And he said, gunshots. He said, black men are not meant, are, are sorry, black men are meant to die. That's what the report said. That is what I saw. And so I said, no, no, my job isn't to come and fix community. Community is beautiful. There's resilience happening here. My job is to come back into University of Toronto, come back into these spaces and actually fix the systemic racism that is causing community illness, because there is so much health and resilience here, but the oppressive forces that are limiting people's jobs and opportunities and the hopes of our youth, that's where I need to go and be part of. And so 
in my role as the Black Health Theme Lead, in my role as part of BPAO, we are engaging in that teaching in healthcare. We are advocating for change. And this pandemic has really given us an opportunity to go out as medical doctors, residents, students, and do that work in community, but also advocate for people to understand that it's not that you know there's a genetic issue with the, the Black community. It is these systems of oppression that people are actually thriving and overcoming. And that's where the podcast comes in because people are actually sur thriving. We wouldn't be here if there wasn't that resilience and resistance, which I say are best played as team sports. You don't do resistance and, and resilience on your own. You do it as a community and in, in solidarity with people. Where that has existed, that is a beautiful thing, but we have to address these systems and structures that continue to oppress and be part of that change and disrupt it and be part of the reshaping the renaissance. And I think healthcare is the perfect place for that renaissance because we want to, of all things, we want to do no harm. And systemic racism and interpersonal racism are causing that harm. So we want to be part of that change. And there's so many people, uh, you know, uh, who look like us and who don't look like us, who want to be part of that change. And so that is um, how I came to do this work. That is how I came to unlearn some of the problematic stuff where I thought I had to fix the community and realize, no, it's the system that needs to be um, not just fixed, but needs that renaissance, needs that restructuring. And we all have a role to play. So that is how I came to be where I am. Oh my God, I got so much joy in my heart right now. Just thinking about uh, what you're doing, how you came to be, just and just that willingness to to be present and learn and listen and and be observant within that the, the community it's it's so brilliant on like it it, just, it really is brilliant like, and i love um just even hearing you talking about the community just I, in some ways it made me sad cuz in you know i was thinking about how covid had to shut down those communities yes. for periods of time and which is such a, a, a source of strength and energy and um, and happiness for so many mm-hmm. of our people. But holy cow, it's as you, you say it, I'm like, there's, there's so much truth here. It's the, 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 the answers come from the community. Listen, what's going to work for them? You know, it, it's how do we personalize it? How do we mm. how do we use what they're saying from what they're telling us and amplify it, make it magical. Oh man. And I, I just, I guess the reason sometimes you hear something and it's, I just think it just doesn't apply just to what we're trying to do in terms of uh, systemic racism no. and, and improving health equity, but it's just, it's like everything, Yeah, you know, it's just, I, I think this is why it's just, um, you're hearing me ramble because it's just so wonderful. And and I really, I mean, you don't hear this too often about, you know, when it comes to having the lens of of celebrating some of these issues around race, health, and happiness. And, and so do you have um, any, like, episodes or moments that you come to mind where it, that you really got to either learn or bring uh, brought joy to you hearing about how either a community rally or efforts by some of our, our colleagues to really uh, push this message. Oh my goodness. So, I mean, there are so many people do it. So in the podcast and in, in the race, health and happiness podcast, in my podcast, I interview 
so many um, people from different backgrounds and different um, uh, fields. So, you know, arts and, and uh, you know, including medicine, but also just uh, professors and other people. And just, there are so many people doing phenomenal work. Um, I think the, the stories that I've heard from them is really, we focus on the overcoming, but I think um, the episode with Dr. Marsha Anderson really hit home when she talked about walking into uh, the emergency department and her father uh, having been misdiagnosed because of stereotypes of anti-Indigenous racism. So they thought that he was uh, drunk or on something. So he wasn't adequately treated and could have died. And for me, that struck home because my own father had um, also been quite ill. And so I had to constantly play that role of trying to play defense with him. And so that, like when, because, so for a lot of us, we enter medicine hoping that it will be somewhat of the great equalizer, right? Um, you know, we're taught that education is the great equalizer or finances are the great equalizer. But in fact, like justice is the great equalizer. And so there will always be differences. So for a lot of us who enter medicine, we end up, if a family member is hospitalized, there's a need to be there and play defense and, and hope that they're not going to experience the biases um, that could result in poor um, health outcomes. So, you know, um, Dr. Marsha Anderson was able to do that for her dad and I was able to do that for my dad. But for so many, we know in healthcare that the biases that, that you know, uh, Black and racialized and Indigenous or, or BIPOC patients experience is that they're not believed, is that they're sometimes undertreated for their pain, um, that, that they might wait longer in the emergency departments than, than a white patient. And so it's these things that um, just really bother me because as much as we're making progress, it, there's so much work that is left to be done. And every day there are people who are impacted. And I can tell you firsthand that for some people who passed away during this pandemic, you know, that I, I, I knew or my, you know, friends had parents who passed away or something like that, they weren't able to go to the hospital and play defense. And so they're living now with this sense that like, did my relative pass away because of the biases? Were they neglected? Because I wasn't able to be there and advocate for them and make sure that no one was going to have their, their biased opinions or decide that their lives were worth, you know, less. And so they didn't get treated on time. Like I know people who are wondering that now because they couldn't, they couldn't be at their loved one's side. And I think for everybody, it was painful not to be by their loved one's side during this pandemic, but for, for BIPOC peoples, there's that extra question of like, always an extra did, did racial bias okay. play a role that they didn't get the things that they needed? And if I had been there, would they have been better off? And so um, that, that in Marsha's episode, when she talks about that really impacted me. And then we also had a bonus episode where we talked about radical self-care and really talking about, despite the fact that we do this work because she does a lot of anti-racism work and decolonizing work um, in healthcare, that it is our, because human beings, it is our right to have joy. It is our human right, it is our birthright. And so I hold on to that uh, very much so that even though there's, there's so much work left to be done and there's painful pieces to it, 
again, in the podcast, we try to tap into what all of our ancestors have done, despite, you know, whether it's colonization or slavery, they found that joy, they found it. And so I'm very committed every day to seeking it, like digging for it, like, like gold, like find that joy and find peers. Like I said, um, resistance, when we're going to, you know, advocate in the system, resistance and resilience are best played as team sports. So I have people that I can turn to when things are tough, but we also come together for the joy of this work and know that we're making a difference. And so, you know, that's the essence of the podcast to me, but that episode with Marsha really hit home because of my own life experiences and the, the things that I'm hearing in this pandemic that people are going through. Um, number one, I, I hope your dad's doing okay now. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about that. Number two, this is um, this is something I must say I I, I haven't this you, like you increase my awareness to this like yes it's been tragic for families to be separated but to have BIPOC communities that are separated and always having that that question in the back of mind with how much of this could have been related to you know inherent biases towards them. Um, that's that's a that's a heavy 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 weight. Number three, um, just to be clear, y'all are making a difference. I, I'm telling you, y'all are making a difference, and you know, especially when you think how influential you guys are being with medical students and trainees. Those are those people are amplifiers, you know, and uh, when they see that they're doing the advocacy within their own community, like within their own oh, yeah. trainees. It's hard not to, that's contagious. That's yeah. absolutely contagious. So thank you for that. Um, yes. oh, well, four, actually I just want to shout out black medical student associations across, uh, across uh, Canada and the black medical student association of Canada. Cause yes, they are on fire. They're like doing next level. Like what amazing. I, I am inspired. So yeah, this, this is nothing compared to like what they are doing. So I just um, want to say I'm, that. Sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to give. No, no, absolutely. No, I just level. love the go get them. I love the go get them of the youth right now. Like they just like, you know what? We're, we're doing this. Um, yes. And uh, the other thing that I think a lot of our listeners can appreciate, but maybe not is the, the work that you're doing, the advocacy, speaking your, 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 even from personal experience, going back to that time that you're, grade two and that bloody teacher is uh, giving you d's <laughs> i see you um like i always tell my my colleagues i hate like i hate talking about this shit because it's traumatic it you go you go back it is it, it, you get a, a little bit of micro trauma mm -hmm. and i didn't realize it until i heard a speaker mention it and it's like yeah after i always after you have a give a talk of like i could do a few talks on systemic racism and what have you like you're not feeling like a joy to the world. Mm -mm. You're like, I need to find joy. So that was my last point yes. was, was that this is such an important point, that self-care piece, yes. because to do this miraculous work, you got to be sound. Mm -hmm. And this is something that, you know, people don't always give themselves permission to do. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to steal one of your questions from the podcast. What do you do? What do you do to make sure that you, have joy in your heart and, and, and have that level of self-care. 
Oh my goodness. Yes. What brings me joy? Um, so I actually, I keep like a list, although I haven't checked it recently of like 21 things to like boost my mood. I'm very particularly, but dance is the main one. Like, wow. so, um, so I Zumba? do hmm? go ahead. What were you going to ask? Me? I, was, I said Zumba. So I, I'm a certified Zumba instructor, but I haven't taught Zumba in a couple of years okay. now. Um, partially pandemic, partially it's having a four and a five-year-old who make me kind of run in Zumba all over the house at home. <laughs> but no, dance is in the morning. So it can be, um, you know, I try to meditate every morning. I try to journal every morning. So I keep a gratitude journal. Um, so I try to do those things. But dance, even if I have almost no time, then it's like it's in the mirror, like in the bathroom. It's like I've got my playlist. I've got like my, you know, got Beyonce. It's got, you know, um, Erica Badu, like, you know, all the things and some folk on there. Yes. Badu is uh, underrated. That first album, no. by the way. Badu oh, seriously? Hey. Yeah. Like, how good is that? It's- I still listen to that album. I'm like, this yes. is like like soulful yes, and just like, you can't help not to move even uh, with the slow jams. That is it. Sorry to digress. No, that's Mm -hmm. not a digression because that's exactly it. So your body is moving. I feel, you know, like when I dance, I feel the ancestors, right? I know that's the one thing like, you know, especially when there's, there's a drum or something that I know that's what they did. This is what I do. So it helps me to recenter myself. Um, particularly as a black woman, right? Because I expect experience the anti-black racism and the um the the sexism kind of that's always kind of implicit everywhere, right? So I have to kind of like arm myself. And so, you know, I have my my positive affirmations, that kind of thing. Um, and then I'm intentional. Like I just, you know, was on WhatsApp with my girls, we're all professionals. I'm like, okay, when are we gonna have lunch? We do our, our chilling chat. So I'm intentional about having my peer support. I my I'm just like uh, Dr. Marsha Anderson talked about on the episode, she has a coach. I have a coach, I have many mentors. And then I spend time with family. Like, you know, this weekend, it was just like um, going to birthday party with the kids and doing stuff with the kids. They like crack me up. I mean, they're four and five years old, right? So they're like uh, generally just kind of hilarious. Um, and so it's, it's thinking about those things and being really intentional. Um, and sometimes it's blocking off time in my schedule for myself and to, to just, you know, go, I don't so much go to the spa lately, but you know, get my, get my hair done or get my nails done, whatever. But it's, it's a number of different things that I do, but the most consistent is music and dancing. Like I can do that while brushing my teeth every morning. Like that, you know, I can, I can count on that. Um, And then of course, like I'm, I don't think it's going to happen, but I had booked for Carnival Trinidad 2022. Unlikely there's 17% vaccinated there. Um, So it's unlikely to happen, but uh, hopefully 2023, but I I'm very intentional about seeking the joy. Again, that's what I've learned from the podcast. That's what our, 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 our ancestors have done. And I want to actually raise something else. Let's, let's, let's um, destigmatize mental health. Um, although I've never had like a formal mental health diagnosis or anything like that, I do have a therapist. This work, like what you talked about, when you go give a talk and you're not feeling quite right, this is like athletic work, right? So when you see like LeBron James, you know, he has like his dietitian and his physiotherapist and he practices meditation and he's on top of his game to do this work. It is marathon work. And so I make sure I have my therapist. I touch base with my therapist, make sure I'm on top of my game because I need to, you know, refuel and, and um, not get, I guess, mentally injured uh, in this, in the sport that we play of, of um, disruption and, and anti-racism. So I have all of the, I'm very intentional about all of those things. I've learned from my peers 
and the evidence. I read about, you know, what, what things can help. Um, so yeah, that's what I do. Wow. This is, I mean, all of that yeah, that's a show joy. on its own, but for real, but like, I love the intentionality. I love the fact that you're being so proactive with so many of these things. And I have a lot of questions and I'm cognizant of the time, but one thing I got to tell you, like when it comes to the dancing and the drumming, I, my, we have Ghanaian uh, heritage. When I, I went to the, uh, it was one of the, I think it was one of the um, Ashantihini. So the one of the tribe, uh, main tribes, Ashanti tribes, uh, mm-hmm. it was a birthday of of the, the king. Okay. And as you're driving into the square, you're hearing the beats. And there's just like, there's something magical that happens within you. You're yes. just like, these are my people. Yes. This is my time. And you just, it was so, such a, an amazing experience. You, you're drawn to it and you couldn't help to move. I was with, I think I was with my two sisters at the time. And, uh, and it, we were just like, you just couldn't help not to be part of this. And it just, you left it feeling so much joy in your heart, feeling belonged, feeling that community. It was, and we were there for my old man's funeral, but at the same time, it was just like, this was a, 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 a moment where you felt connected and felt joy. And so as you, as you were saying that I, I yeah. couldn't re- agree more, uh, Ani. So thank you for sharing. And listen, this has been, you know, I, I, I do a lot of interviews, but when this is why I do these interviews, just, just for, for the record, because this I know this is meaningful. I know that someone's going to hear this and it's going to impact somebody in a positive way. It's impacted me personally, selfishly in in a positive way. (laughs) That advocacy, that fuel, the juice, (laughs) Poppy's got it right now. Like I, I, the pedal to the metal, like, especially considering, you know, these positions that we're in. So I, I just want to thank you so much. And where can people, get a hold of you where can they find the podcast Mm -hmm. if they want to if they want a speaking engagement and y'all gonna pay if you want a speaking (laughs) engagement you heard this this ain't coming this ain't no discount son all right this is gonna be prime time cake if that ain't clear but where can they track you now hey thank you my brother oh my goodness so uh for the podcast it's called race health and happiness and you can catch it on basically any platform or you can follow us on uh, social media um, at Race Health Happy. Uh, for me, dronoram.com, you can go there and find resources on anti-Black racism and health. Um, and my uh, Instagram handle is doctor, like dr.o.noram, um, my last name. So I'm on Instagram and um, on Twitter, I'm Ani, at AniActiveMD. Cause like, yeah, that's my, that was my original Zumba kind of name. So on the active MD and um, yeah, this has brought me joy. So I just want to say that, you know, talking to colleagues who inspire me like yourself and youth who inspire me, that brings me great joy. So I thank you because this has been a wonderful, I didn't have to look for it. It was just right here, this moment of joy with you. So thank you so much. Thank you. This has been so special. Podcast Nation, that was a gem. That was proper. Thanks again for listening. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook at Quadcast. Leave any messages or comments at Quadcast99 at gmail.com. Leave that five-star review. You know what I'm saying? Helps with the visibility of the show on Spotify or iTunes, wherever you listen to the podcast. I'm going to thank you in advance, yo. 
Tell a friend too, man. Solving healthcare, tell me this ain't changing the boogie. This is precious. Tell a friend. You love this, this episode, send that link off to a loved one and help spread the word. Those healthcare providers that need some love, go over to solvingwellness.com. Once again, where we are trying to make a difference and reduce and burnout. Thanks everybody for listening. We love you. We'll connect again real soon. Peace.